This is RDQI. This episode of RDQI is brought to you by Dave's Relish. Yes, it's hot. Deal with it. Why'd you buy it? Dave'sRelish.com. Hey, Rob. Hey, Dave. What's going on? Not too much. How about you? Oh, just sitting over here thinking about that mythology episode that we recorded a couple uh, weeks ago. Oh, so yeah. Highly recommend. One. It was a good one. You should go check it out. I, I really liked the, the conversation that we got in about um, the universality of the human condition and whether we kind of all, like as humans um, across the globe and across, you know, eras of time have that same you know there was some sort of fundamental sameness of like how we experience the world and i was thinking about the study of psychology which not exactly but it's also trying to qualify human experiences in, in the context of you know, the whole general population, right? Mm -hmm. What is depression for every human being? You know, how do we, how do we tell if somebody is depressed? Um, but it got me thinking in parallel because we were talking last time in the mythology episode about how, when you really dig into it, a lot of the different myths that seem to have a lot of similarities across, you know, cultures don't necessarily like the trickster mythology in some cultures, the trickster is sort of the hero, whereas in others, it's, you know, this, this bad person to be, um, you know, to be shunned and, and demonstrating bad behavior. Mm-hmm. So is there really um, a, a universal human condition? And then I got to thinking about psychology and how we research and conduct research on that topic and you had a really interesting point or an article that you read that i i I think is really fascinating um that kind of shed some i don't know alarming potentially that might be too strong of a word but i'll I'll go with it anyway i think alarming alarming light on this so i you know what what is what were you what were you looking at yeah well so kind of for the same reasons I was thinking along these same lines. And I'd I'd heard about this term and I wanted to do some research on it. And the term is, um, it's an acronym and it's weird. So there is, there's, you could say psychologists have been studying weird populations. Okay. Now, obviously I think it's a great acronym because it is weird that we are studying this population. And the acronym for weird really stands for um, basically a society or a culture that is Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. So generally speaking, the United States would fall in that category. The, the nation of France would fall in that category. Um, and there's nothing really to note, like off the top of my head, that's like really fascinating about this, except for the fact that about 95% of psychological research done in the, in the United States of America, at least, if not Europe, I can't remember the stat exactly, is conducted on a weird population, which is, <laughs> I was about to say, which is weird, which is odd <laughs> because it's a very small subset of humanity as a whole. Yeah. 
It makes sense. It seems like it's it's such an easy thing to overlook because, you know, think about about the about, about psychological research is, you know, primarily done on on in university settings, right? Right, like I an mean, undergrad or a master's student getting paid 50 bucks to be part of a survey, something like that, right? Yeah, and and higher education and higher learning, you know, typically the majority of these institutions are in these weird countries or these weird populations. And so it's not a, you know, malicious intent on anyone's part to say we're only going to study this specific type of population, but you can see how it, how it sort of happened by accident. Yeah. It seemed like it was a a natural coincidence seemed effective for both parties. But then when you start extrapolating from this body of work that, Oh, we've discovered these things. They, for their, they, must therefore be true about humanity. That's mm-hmm. where it gets alarming. Because there's a lot of things that, um, as I can probably, well, at least attempt to explain, are fascinating about weird populations and also something that makes them unique. It, and just so you know, I'm pulling this from a, an article that'll be linked actually in the, the notes to this episode. Um, and the main source Ooh. is uh, a man by the name of Joe Henrik, probably Dr. Joe Henrik, I'm assuming. Um, although he didn't have any letters after his name. I only assume because he's the department head for human evolutionary biology at Harvard. Um, So take with that what you will. But he was... OSB. He was was pointing to some studies that have been conducted since the 50s. And it's um, this test called the ASH, A-S-C-H. I'm going to say ASH. The ASH conformity test, which basically is a test like this. So Dave, let's say... I'm conducting this experiment, and you're the the test subject. I will give you a sheet of paper. On the left-hand sheet of the paper, there will be a line line drawn. It might be two inches long. It might be three inches long, some length. And then on the right-hand side of that paper, there will be two or three other lines. One of those lines will match the line on the left in terms of length. The other two will be different. Okay, so now as the observer, I would ask you, Dave, would you tell me, which line on the right matches in length the line on the left? A really relatively simple test, actually not even very interesting. 98% of people get it right. Um, okay, so why is this interesting? Because really the real test is when Ash, Ash would do this, was he would have Dave, he would have you watch our friend, let's say Eric, perform the test. And then I, or he would ask you, Dave, to then perform the test. And the reason Mm -hmm. for that is he was trying to detect conformity. Basically, why are people willing to conform to each other even when they know the answer is wrong? And the original test in the 50s in and of itself wasn't very fascinating because it was done on weird people. But this test was replicated, as science is attempting to do and should do, replicated across the globe. So in the 90s, there was a meta-study of all of these studies And this is where the conformity aspect started to get parsed along kind of a little bit like you were talking about with Hofstede, where basically if you're, let's say you're French or an American, and you see the, the person you're observing the test, perform the test, you see them obviously get the answer wrong about 80% of the time. If, if you're a French person or an American, you're going to say, no, they they did that incorrectly, which is what you're prompted to do from the observer. Mm-hmm. But if you're, say, from a more traditional rural agrarian society, 
uh, Fiji, Ghana, something like that. It's actually more of like a coin flip, whether or not you're going to point out that someone failed the test. So there's a sense of conforming in certain uh, societies is good, whereas in other societies, it isn't. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is one of Hofstede's cultural dimensions of, uh, it is um, uh, individualism versus collectivism. So... Um, and actually, we mentioned this same example on uh, on Eric's episode a few weeks ago. Um, but you know, there was a, a I believe it was Singapore Airlines, um, and somehow they had you know eighty percent of the airplane uh, airline fatalities were Singapore Airlines. This was I think back in the eighties or the nineties. Um, and so they conducted the study as to why, like, why is it, is it a, you know, a mechanical issue with the planes? Is it a regulation issue? What, what is it? And what they found was that when they studied all these plane crashes, Singapore has a very, very, very high collectivity, um, index, which means that there's a lot of conformity. There's, there is a lot of, um, you know, the, the, nail that sticks up gets hammered down, right? You want to um, agree and align and you don't want to contradict people. And so if, and it's a very hierarchical society. So if there is a pilot who gives an order that everybody else, you know, on the crew thinks that's, that, that's not right. In, in American culture, which is very highly individualistic, everybody would speak up. Like, no, of course, that's, that's a terrible idea. We're not going to do that. But nobody would speak up because it's the boss and you don't you don't question the boss's authority. You know, it's really interesting because they they talked about how they like they, you know, because fine, you know, we don't want to change our culture, but we have to land plans, land planes safely. So how do how do they fix that? And they kind of went in and within the context of the culture created this is very interesting. If, If you had only done that study in America, you would have, you know, and you took that sample size, no matter how large it was, if you took, you know, 100,000 Americans, you would still get a sample size that would not be indicative of the greater global population mm-hmm. in any way. <laughs> you know, we are, Americans are one of the most individualistic, really, really far to the right on that spectrum. And so, you know, you're missing this whole subgroup of people. Not subgroup, your your majority, I would say. Well, right. I think the implication is you're taking a very small subgroup and extrapolating to the whole world. Um, And I think it's unintentional. It certainly seems unintentional, but just a very inconvenient convenience, if you know what I mean. Well, you know, Hofstad was was such a, a groundbreaking study when it was released because the the idea that different cultures have kind of fundamentally different ways of thinking and interacting with the world is a really new idea. I mean, even as, as much as, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and, and honestly, I mean, if you, it, we can probably see it in, in some of the people that we know today, there's this, this idea that, you know, Oh, this, this behavior is weird. Not, not in the acronym way. In the we- <laughs> it's odd. <laughs> um, I, yeah, it's odd. I don't, I don't like it because you know, why would they do that? Well, it, because they have a completely different experience than you. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know, think about, um, handshakes, you know, so no, in sure. America, 
Well, yeah, rem- remember handshakes, I should say. <laughs> Actually, I know somebody who, um, uh, can I say this, is potentially going to get engaged fairly soon. And so I, uh, I, I, uh, I said, you know what? I haven't done one of these in about a year, but I want to shake your hand. Congratulations. <laughs> and it felt very strange. Why do we rub hands together? But anyway, so so in the in the before four times, a handshake in America, you you wanted to grip, you know, with a firm grip, right? Yeah, and show a, strength. And a loose grip kind of meant, uh, you know, it just it wasn't it didn't it was project feminine. strength, right? Um, but handshakes in other cultures are are very, you know, it's it's a light grasping of the hands, and so an American who shakes somebody from. Um, you know, like the Middle East, for instance, shakes their hand, they would think, oh, you know, this person's whatever, untrustworthy or something. Well, no, it's just a different, it's a different cultural um, way of thinking. That's a, obviously a very simplified one. But so I think I'm getting a little bit off topic here, Rye. But well, no, no, no. I think it's a, let me pick you up and bring it right back in. Because I think what you're, you're talking about is perfect. Because there are cultural differences. I think that has been evident since the beginning of time. I mean, you can read ancient history books like I like to do, unfortunately. And even they talk about being like, and those people are kind of weird because they they cut their hair like this. Like it's been going on forever. But what yeah. I think is kind of fascinating is that we're in this period of time where we feel like humanity is moving and progressing forward, especially through science, in leaps and bounds. You know, we're doing things that are amazing and it's stupendous. Um, we're planning on going to Mars, you know, we're like the list is amazing. So there's always this mm-hmm. sense of like, if we've gotten here, we must be so far along the path, whatever that path is exactly. And yeah. so you start once you, if your mind is thinking along these lines, we're like, we can do anything with science. We can do anything we can achieve. But then if you don't check how your science is actually formulated, that's where it gets alarming because we can be making these extrapolations that really should not be aren't really useful for humanity not for homo sapiens at least maybe for americans it's committing one of the sins of of statistical analysis right statistical analysis says you can't measure every single piece of a population so you take a sample size that is indicative of the diversity in the larger population you do your analysis there and then you can say with relative amount of confidence that this this whatever the distribution of whatever you're measuring likely holds true for the greater population. Um, but that only works if your sample size truly is indicative of the greater population. And when you when you take a sample size that really doesn't represent the rest of the world, <laughs> mm-hmm. then you're making decisions based on what's right for some people, but not for others. Perfect example is, you know, some of the problems that they're having with um, facial recognition software. So, oh yeah, in in the early days of facial recognition software, um, there were clear racial biases because, you know, different races have different facial features and they weren't so, so, you know, for instance, a, a white person, they could kind of identify whatever they were trying to. They could they could read the face, identify the face, um, identify the mood. But then you put somebody, um, you know, somebody from China, for instance, and the machine would go haywire because the people who built and, and programmed the software were white. And they... And the data set that got the, the, the white software face. was trained on was exactly. white. Right. 
Exactly. And that was sort of a big embarrassment because a lot of this AI technology came out of these very progressive tech companies that all of a sudden are, you know, they build a robot and it's racist. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, we talked about a little bit about that with the GPT-3. Um, mm-hmm. Although... In a, ne- in a never published In a never published episode, episode right? Yeah. Ooh, there we go. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah so GPT-3, really quick, is a... Next level artificial intel, uh, sure, artificial intelligence software. It's not, but let's <laughs> say it is. Um, Nothing is though. That's that's a whole other topic. That's a whole other topic. But basically, it, it trained on this massive data set and can have conversations with you if you want to. Like you could talk to Abraham Lincoln because the data sets includes all of Abraham Lincoln's words, so it can converse with you. Is it is it amazing? Yeah. Is it good? Uh, I don't know. I'm not there to evaluate. But it also mm-hmm. spews out racist you know, bigoted, masochistic, whatever, because all that inf- all that information has been included in the data set, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So there, you know, to kind of harp on that point a little bit more, there's this, uh, a study, this, this group of cognitive scientists out of the UT of Austin, um, Jennifer Clegg, Nicole Wen, and Christine Ligare, I think it's Ligare, um, conducted a study very similar to the Osh conformity test, but they kind of narrowed it down a little bit more in a unique way. So kind of like the OSH test where it was about really observing someone else's behavior and, you know, agreeing with it or disagreeing with it, you know, same thing, except this time, instead of lengths of, you know, a line on a piece of paper, basically children, one group being in the United States, the other group being in Vanuatu. Vanuatu is a tiny little island like due north of New Zealand and due east of Australia. So if you want to talk about a population that's very isolated from the world, it's a pretty good place to start. Yeah. And basically they showed these children how to make a bracelet of beads. And then the children were then shown bracelets that had been made by other children and were asked which of the two bracelets they liked better. One bracelet would have matched the um, instructor Whereas the other bracelet would have been, would have deviated from the pattern the instructor had implemented, let's say. Mm-hmm. What they found was pretty interesting and really just dovetails with everything we're saying. Basically, they found that the Vanuatuans, Vanuatuans, sure, I hope that's right. Yeah. Um, we don't have any listeners there yet, so they won't write us any emails. But <laughs> Vanuatuans, they preferred the conforming child. And the specific quote that I was able to get from the study was the sense that Vanuatans consider those children better behaved through their actions of matching what the instructor had done. Now, the Americans had the exact opposite reaction in general. <laughs> <laughs> the Americans yep. preferred the non-conforming bracelet with the quote that's being pulled here from the study being more along the lines of like, they're, these children display creative behavior. Right, they display a creative aptitude. And I think that really mm. jumps into the, the cultural perspective point. I mean, if you're born and raised and you're taught to do things a certain way and conforming is the right way to go, it's good. It's um, good for the community. Is there anything wrong with that? No. I mean, I, I think of uh, um, a... I don't think this was a study. I think it was just a video compilation, but showing, you know, somebody falling on the subway tracks in New York and everybody's just standing around kind of looking at them. And then, uh, you know, somebody gets caught between the trains in Japan and literally everybody on the platform is 
just mobilized to assist and they they like the whole group of people helped push the train another group helped pull her out i mean it was just unbelievable um you know uh example of just camaraderie and what a bunch of human beings can do and they when they feel a sense of collectivism whereas you know america we tend to think this individualistic spirit is great but on on the other hand like we're all kind of a bunch of jerks sometimes. <laughs> well, sure, sure, sure. Okay, that is true. Um, <laughs> now, having said that, though, um, socially, and not to put this on the Japanese, but any socially conservative, let's say, or traditional society um, mm-hmm. is capable of just as much atrocity, if you will, through this dogma. Um, right. And right. it could, I mean, it could be the same thing on a highly individualized Western perspective. Um, yeah. So it, it can go either way. Yeah, I guess it, it was a juxtaposition of, you know, is individual culture better than collective? I don't, mm, I think okay, there's yeah. pluses and minuses to both, right? It, it's, there's no better, like saying better is, is nonsense. You know, that's, that's almost, you know, jingoist to begin with. <laughs> right. Right. That's a good point. So I think it's interesting that you bring that up because that is a really stark image to kind of hold in your head. Joe Henrik in this article, he kind of goes on to explain a couple things about kind of what you're talking about there. Because um, he's, he's spent a lot of his career studying this phenomena um, and collating information and collaborating with people across the world to kind of really grapple with this question. Um, and he, from a bunch of different people, and he conducted a study in 2010 um, that you can find via the link that is where he basically kind of dove into like, what are weird people all about? Like, what is it that makes them tick? And he found that, as we've said, if you're a weird person, you're going to be highly individualistic. Okay. That one's pretty easy, pretty obvious. Um, Mm -hmm. He also noted that they're self-obsessed. And when he says self-obsessed, self-obsessed, he doesn't mean like, oh my gosh, I am the greatest thing that's ever happened to earth. I mean, that's certainly possible on the spectrum of self-obsession, but he more means like, what you do as an individual is what matters in life. Less so of like what you do inside your family to contribute to the family culture is what matters in life. What I thought was really interesting is that weird people tend to be racked by guilt, as he says. And the reason he talks about that is because weird people tend to have personal standards. Again, that self-obsession. We have really high personal standards. And almost to a T, he's basically saying, through research, he says this, that no one can meet those standards. So you're racked by guilt, not because of like you're failing society, but because you're failing yourself. I thought that was a really uh, interesting wrinkle in all of this. Yeah. Yeah. My mind doesn't quite know what to make of that, but it really, it's, it's, uh, it's firing, it's firing up the synapses. Um, this makes a lot of sense because, I mean, to, not to take this too much in a personal direction, but, I mean, I feel that constantly. You know, I, I, I think there's a lot of people out there who would agree or who would resonate with this statement. Um, I am my own biggest critic, for <laughs> sure. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> you know, to the extent where I've, 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 you know, done some work that I've thought, oh, this is awesome awful this is terrible i could do so much better this and it's it ends up being just you know phenomenally received because you know i'm i'm being so hypercritical of myself and so 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 
what what does that say about collectivist cultures though are they just don't have this this sense of ego to live up to so they're living up to society's expectations which are much more manageable than themselves i mean i don't know about manageable but um well, it is for me because I, I mean, I, I know at this point if I turn something in like, yeah, this is fine for society, but it's not for me. Yeah. I mean, this path is like, going to be, I know I could do better. Th- this will blow them away, but I know I could do better. I see what you mean. I'm talking about a work product too. Cause that's, you know, my life, but I think that's, you know, it just based on my sample size of talking with people about, you know, their their hopes and dreams and their and their problems and, and things like that. That that self doubt, that self um that sense of self that sort of just beats you up because you're not doing the best you can at every second. That's a common problem with my American friends. No, I mean me too. I think and if you I mean you want to jump back to some of the issues that psychology is trying to grapple with. I mean, kind of, go, it's like almost like a feedback loop in and of itself. Um, you know, dealing with people who are depressed or anxious or don't know how to live in this current world that we have that's so high stress. Um, <laughs> which, when you're self-obsessed in the in the Henrik sense of the word, and you are you, you can never live up to your own standards. Of course, you're going to be depressed. Of course, you're going to be anxious. Like. It almost seems like a natural, it's almost like which one came first, you know? Did Hendrik <laughs> just stumble upon this and like put the dots together? I mean, it seems to be what his his research is about. It's not creating something. It's about discovering what exists. But it does make you think, like, well, let me let me put it this way. It does make you think, how cyclical is it that of psychological research is conducted on a weird population. And that weird population then extrapolates that and says, this is true for the world. When that population is by definition, highly individualistic. So they probably tend to think that they're right to some degree, or they have rightness inside of them. Mm -hmm. And then they're also highly analytical people who can abstract ideas. We didn't really touch on that. That's kind of a, a detour we shouldn't go down, but that is a, a key component that Henrik talks about. And then they're also, they're guilt-ridden again. So it's no wonder that we just take, and by we, I mean weird people, take a subset of population and extrapolate it to the world to be like, well, it must be true. Because if it's true about us in the most Western, educated, advanced industrial complex, it's so rich and we're so democratic, it must be the best thing. And I think that, this is where it kind of crosses over into a subject that I really want to dance around because I think this really taps into the root of something kind of scary that's like underneath the United States and a lot of Western Europe, which is mm-hmm. the idea that Western Europeans are right about things, about everything, you might say. And it's been an idea that's been going around since, I mean, at least colonial days, you know? 1500s 1400s i wonder if do you think that sense that western people that we're right about everything that we're bringing the industrial revolution to the world or we're bringing christianity to the world or we're bringing democracy to the world do you think that's because it's a weird population or do you think it's something different (laughs) 